Hello and welcome to the EUISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy what-if scenarios, events that are not as unlikely as they perhaps seem and definitely worth thinking about. My name is Florence Gaub, I am the EUISS Deputy Director and the host of the show, and with me today are Daniel Fjord, our Defense Analyst at the USS. Hello, Daniel. Hello. And Katarina Mustasilta, the person working on conflict. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So welcome to both of you. Oh, let's take a look at the news item that has just been handed in straight from the future, the year 2021. 15 people were killed today in a car bomb explosion in Wakanda, the capital of Cherba. This is the second attack this week to target civilians and brings the death toll in the Cherban civil war to more than 1,500. Violent conflict first engulfed the country two months ago when a failed coup attempt split the security forces. One faction, the Eurolansky and Freedom Front, is now fighting the government. It is suspected of enjoying covert support from the People's Republic of Tajikistan. President Matonge has put an end to all ongoing mediation attempts with his opponents and has declared that the only language they understand is force. The EU's high representative declared on Twitter that the internationalization of this conflict is a very worrying development. So we are back in the studio, back from the fictional country, Cherba. Daniel and Katarina, why is the internationalization of the civil war what, in this scenario, the high representative is mostly concerned about? Just to start with, the scenario here is that uh, the Republic of Cherba is facing what we call countries' internal armed conflicts or an intrastate armed conflict in which a um, sovereign country and its regime government uh, faces one or more non-governmental armed parties, um, also known as rebel groups. And these types of conflicts have become the model form of state-based armed conflicts over the last um, few decades. Uh, for instance, in, in 2018, if we look at the conflict landscape, Out of fifty-two uh, uh, active state-based armed conflicts, fifty were countries' internal armed conflicts. In comparison to only two conflicts that were defined as interstate conflicts, meaning conflicts between two sovereign states. However, what makes uh, the current trends uh, somewhat worrying is that increasingly we see these countries' internal conflicts becoming internationalized, which means that there are at least one external actor or more that provide uh, military support in the form of a uh, troops uh, to one of the conflict parties uh, making the original conflict diet in, in a country. So if we compare the numbers of early 1990s, which, by the way, was the last time we saw as many active state-based armed conflicts as we are seeing today, the main difference is that in the early 1990s, most of these countries' internal armed conflicts were indeed countries' internal armed conflicts without such heavy interference by international or external actors. Whereas today we see for the fifth uh, consecutive year, more than 30% of interstate armed conflicts becoming internationalized. So even if we didn't know anything about this scenario, other than we are facing an internal armed conflict, we should actually be worried that it might be internationalizing since one third of these conflicts are. And of course, now we do also know that or we have intelligence indicating that there is an external uh, state in this uh, case that might have some type of 
political conflict or tensions with the Republic of Cherpa and thus might have some political or economic interests that incentivize this actor to play an active role in this um, country, in this internal armed conflict. And thirdly, I would mention also the salience of ethnic ties that we've gotten to know play a role in this conflict. So in the case of conflict context having transnational ethnic ties between one of the conflict parties and a potential external actor, the vulnerability for not only internationalization but conflict diffusion via these ethnic ties is higher than on average based on empirical conflict research. So to summarize, we already knew that most conflicts today take place within states rather than among states. Now, the new dimension is internationalization, as you said. Every third conflict has an international meddling or component to it. You saying basically that one of the reasons is identity ties, basically, or could we not also say that it's connectivity, i.e. globalization that leads to this? Definitely. So I, I would say, in general, we live in a more connected world than before. Indeed, maybe that is one of the main underlying causes of this trend that we see with internationalization. Yet from conflict research, we do know that there are certain situations that are even more vulnerable towards a spreading of an originally rather limited conflict. And like you mentioned, it doesn't have to be ethnic ties, but this kind of collective shared identities that are often not limited to a sovereign country, but we have national transboundary ethnic groups or religious groups or other communities that share a common identity. And then if you see that a group in another country is either facing an armed struggle or is indeed trying to advance their own political standing vis-a-vis -vis other groups, you might be more inclined to try to support these groups. Or at the same time, you might feel more threatened in your own political context because your allies elsewhere are being drawn into or are involved in an armed conflict. And you work on defense, so you're kind of also a conflict researcher, except on the other end of the barrel, is, can I say that? Yeah. So why do you think... Uh, from, your, from where you're sitting, why is this conflict vulnerable? Just to underline what Katerina's already said about the nature of conflicts and the potential for internationalization. The ethnic element is one part of, a, let's say, an issue that can be exploited by external powers. Um, but I think um, it's also important to try and make a, a bit of a distinction. Uh, when we talk about internationalization of conflict, I think that there are, at least from my perspective, two ways into this debate. One of them is, I would say, less internationalization and more a kind of regionalization of conflict. So that is, as Katerina has already said, that there may be issues related to ethnicity, economic interests, military interests or strategic interests in a particular region, which may lead to the risk not only of spillover of those conflicts, but also kind of regional contagion. So that is one way into it. I'm not saying that that is easily contained as a type of crisis. I mean, in our fictitious scenario... We presume or we're assuming there is to some degree uh, an element of contagion across the borders from Cherba into, into neighboring states. Um, but we can see this very much in, in real life experience in places like the Sahel, 
where you have a kind of test case for a regionalized uh, conflict. The second part of the debate or second aspect, I think, is um, a more geopolitical internationalization. So less a focus perhaps on a particular region and more a focus on what third powers wish to achieve in a particular country or region that is um, fragile or or has issues of um, stability and so forth. My focus would probably be more on the geopolitical aspect and the internationalization of that conflict. And there are two ways into this, of course. You could see a third power, in our case, uh, Fajikistan, as we've called it, trying to exploit this crisis. What is unclear at the moment is why that third power wants to exploit the crisis. Again, there are a number of ways to think about this. Firstly, you could think of a kind of clear-cut strategy where the third power actually wants a change of government for their own purposes. Or you could see a strategy of influencing uh, Cherba just to create more instability, not only in Cherba, but more regionally. And that in itself can also have a geopolitical effect or strategic effect from that exploitation. From the European Union's perspective, of course, separating the two kind of forms of conflict, international conflict, regional and geopolitical, is actually becoming a lot more difficult. Firstly, we have the issue of the rise of third powers anyway. And what we see more clearly now is that countries like China and Russia do not find it possible yet to, or they don't desire, to export their influence or gather influence on the world stage in a traditional means, which basically means to use military force. That was kind of the traditional way of doing it. Now they're using much more hybrid tactics to influence certain countries, to, yes, in many cases, get an economic foothold in that country through the tools of conditionality, um, through the use of infrastructure development, these types of tools. Um, So what they're trying to do is essentially increase their influence in the world. And I would also say that in many cases, when third powers engage in a crisis situation, it is usually as a consequence of a strategic vacuum that has been left as well. So it's not just the crisis situation itself in the country and in the region, but it's also a question over past uh, or reliable partnerships that you've had in the past, in this case maybe the European Union or some European states or even the United States. These partnerships which are slowly withering away and they're leaving a political vacuum in which third powers, third states can exploit this crisis. It's not just states, of course, also terrorist organizations, terrorist groups. Um, As Katerina said as well, there may be warring factions in neighboring countries that wish to exploit that crisis as well. But I think from the second dimension, the more geopolitical dimension of this, we can see influence operations, the mobilization of economic aid, infrastructure, quite heavy disinformation campaigns in parts of the world where We're not used to seeing headlines that criticize the Europeans in maybe a country like Gerba or even in the the region that it's set in. So I think Katerina's completely right about the conflict trends that we witness over the last few decades. But I think one of the geopolitical puzzles that we have now is how to deal with the presence of third powers increasingly in our near and wider neighborhood and not necessarily even having the tools necessary to deal with the presence of a third power that might want to exploit or aggravate or even settle a regional conflict in their favour. Let me ask a perhaps obvious question. Why is it bad that third powers meddle with internal conflict? 
It might be obvious, but I think we should clarify why it actually is. Before answering this question, <laughs> which is obviously a super important question, because if it wasn't that bad, why would we be that worried? But uh, just to go back to what Daniel was saying, I completely echo that. So I think we live in this context where countries' internal armed conflicts or conflicts that originally were rather limited both in terms of intensity and in terms of the parties involved and the geographical scope are becoming increasingly complex in terms of the number of parties involved, again the geographical scope and the interests and the incompatibilities Involved, And this obviously makes conflict resolution attempts, for example, a lot more difficult. I agree that we should be better at distinguishing uh, what type of internationalization we are talking about. And I think your categorization into this uh, more geopolitical internationalization that kind of comes from perhaps regional powers, but also great and global powers is often quite opportunistic in terms of, like you mentioned, there are countries' own political and economic interests and strategies or strategical interests behind this. And on one hand, you mentioned Sahel, where we see more a development where state fragility and international non-state armed actors drive internationalization that actually is more, I would call it more conflict diffusion across borders. Burkina Faso is a prime example of this that has now seen an increase in organized political violence that is to some extent as at least contributed by the crisis in Mali. What I would add, though, is that what makes things even more complicated is that these two types of internationalizations occur often simultaneously in parallel. Again, the Sahel is a good example. You have both external involvement in terms of troops, to different uh, conflict parties. But at the same time, you have this diffusion across borders driven by transnational non-state armed groups, but also a lack of uh, state capacities or state fragility and a lot of political and economic grievances on the ground that obviously uh, make it possible for armed groups to spread across borders. So there is a, a statistic that says 30% of conflicts are international, but we know from what Daniel said, there is regional, i.e. neighbors, and then you have geopolitical powers. And we don't know statistically how many, like what's the actual breakdown, correct? That's a really good question. And um, at the moment, we indeed do not have very fine-grade categorized data on different types of internationalizations. So the main conflict databases use a definition of internationalization, meaning or referring to an external actor, so an actor that is not originating from the conflict where the conflict first arised, providing military support, so participating in a conflict in a military manner. Of course, this, for instance, leaves out all cases where external powers give a substantial economic or political support. So these are not counted in the main conflict databases. So as an example, European humanitarian aid to the Syrian refugees 
in the countries around Syria, that does not appear as internationalization. By this definition, no. Then there are other data projects that kind of uh, try to trace different types of aid to conflict context. Then again, if we think about diffusion as basically a question of whether a country's internal armed conflict in one country has an influence in the probability of a neighboring country experiencing their own internal armed conflict. We have data projects that try to model this and trace this. But going back to what Daniel was saying, in terms of separating between a more regional internationalization and spreading of conflict and really trying to understand that and separating that from internationalization as this more geopolitical phenomenon, we still lack research and analysis on that. But let's go back to why is it actually bad? I mean, a lot of the international support or involvement normally, at least from what a lot of people in the public would guess, comes from a place of wanting to help. Daniel, I'm looking at you. Why is it bad? Actually, I think the discussion about data and why it's bad or not are actually linked. Because one of the problems we have in trying to uncover at least the geopolitical aspect of the debate, firstly, is a lack of data. Because by their very definition, these types of operations are covert. So it's very, very difficult actually to pin down in a quantitative sense uh, what we should look at. The other aspect is that there are already organizations who have tried to calculate the influence of third powers, such as China or Russia, in places like Africa. There are some severe methodological problems with these uh, data collection sources. And just as one example, it is very easy for, uh, to draw a map which shows that the Chinese are the highest foreign direct investors now in many African countries. So they invest a lot of their money, state capital, into this part of the world. The question is, how do you then draw the link between FDI, which is, let's face it, quite legitimate on the face of things, with the aggravation or exploitation of a crisis situation in a country? So the data aspect is very, very difficult. And coming to the question of whether it's good or bad, the good part is that everyone who has the capacity to play a legitimate role in international affairs, no one can really stop them or question it. So if you want to invest in a part of the world, there's nothing that really stops you from doing that. Trading with countries around the world is a legitimate action. The problem we have is that it starts to get bad, I think, for two main reasons. The first one is, and this is from a very selfish European perspective, that when we see engagement by third powers in crisis situations that don't seek to uphold the same type of values or approach that we have, there are question marks there. So we know, for example, the pattern of Chinese aid. Uh, we know, for example, the type of um, Russian diplomatic presence in these parts of the world are by and large detrimental or at least very different to the way that the Europeans at least would like to act in this part of the world. So there is the issue of incompatibility between the underlying rationale for engaging. Secondly, there's the geopolitical element again. And here there's one of proximity, I think. And that is to say that when you have third countries like Russia or China, and even the US, let's be frank, 
they have a geopolitical distance from the crisis situations themselves. So if we're talking about Africa, the spillover effects, the potential fallout from crisis situations is more likely to hit European shores before it does US, Chinese or Russian. And of course, third powers know that when they're engaging in this part of the world. That's why I said at the beginning that we have to be really, really careful about understanding what a third power wants to do in a particular crisis situation. Is it simply to export instability? And it can use certain tools to do that. Or is it more to try and gain a real foothold in that country where you have a situation of servitude, where you have a government or a militia who may have been successful in a coup, who is then beholden to a third power for all sorts of decisions? So I think um, maybe it's a bit difficult to get into a debate of whether it's good or bad. And it's true that it's difficult sometimes to see the fault lines of where that discussion lie. But I think that increasingly we see that the fallout effects of the activities of third powers in these parts of the world negatively impact the European Union. And maybe one more point, especially on the difference between regionalization and geopolitical internationalization, if we want to call it that. I think what is really, really important, as Katerina has already said, is that we are able to closely study why a crisis situation has occurred in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because if it is a situation which is relatively localised with, let's say, bordering influence or bordering states that have influence in a particular situation, that's very different from saying a third power has actually started a conflict or aggravated a conflict in a country. And there is a distinction to be had there. Katerina used the word opportunistic, and that is really, really crucial here in especially hybrid situations where third powers do their intelligence work, assess the opportunities that could be had by exploiting a crisis situation. And in some cases, third powers don't even necessarily have a, a strategic end goal in sight. It is simply to export instability. Just to continue from that, first of all, I, I completely agree. I think it's crucial that we analyze not only the root causes of the original conflict and the dynamics, the within country dynamics, but really ask ourselves whether we are researchers, analysts, policymakers, peace builders, what are the motivations of the external actors intervening in internal conflict. Going back to this uh, rather conservative definition of internationalization, meaning troops and military support by an external actor to conflict parties in a country, with the disclaimer that the research um, is still ongoing and there are some mixed findings when it comes to this. But we do tend to lean towards a finding that when a country's internal armed conflict becomes internationalized, it uh, becomes uh, lengthier, it becomes deadlier, and it becomes more protracted in terms of resolving it. And I think we can all agree that these three problems are not particularly good, at least uh, often from a European perspective or a perspective that would like to see a more perhaps peaceful world than uh, one of protracted conflicts. And there are two things I, I would argue that internationalization does that make conflict resolution in particular more difficult. So in terms of uh, ending conflicts and ending them in particular through negotiations and some kind of conflict settlement, we often talk about two main hurdles that one needs to overcome. One is that of information dilemma. So conflict parties basically 
do not exactly know each other's resolve in relation to their own resolve. So capacity to actually continue fighting. And the second hurdle is commitment problem. So even if I, as an armed actor, would kind of be leaning towards making peace or settling a conflict. I do not trust my conflict or the other conflict party to actually uphold the agreements that we might be close to achieving and therefore I might rather decide to continue fighting or at least be quite sensitive or quite uh, easily convinced to take back arms at some point if I feel like the commitment isn't respected. And now enters more actors. So enters international or external powers supporting one or uh, multiple of these countries' internal armed actors. And of course, this information dilemma becomes more difficult because now I'm not only uh, supposed to kind of calculate and estimate the resolve and capacities of other internal conflict parties in my context in the conflict system, but that of the external supporters. So it becomes more difficult to say who is winning and who is losing and where are we in this conflict. So I would say if the intervention by an external actor does not quickly solve the conflict, which of course sometimes might be the case, especially one could um, argue that if a state get support by an international, by an external actor at an early stage of an interstate conflict that might tip the already imbalanced situation between a state and a rebel group into a state where the conflict is technically over. But because what we see often is that the non-state armed groups also get significant support from abroad, conflicts instead tend to become longer. And what obviously this means is that we know conflicts in general, they further undermine state legitimacy, they uh, make governance structures increasingly fragile, they have negative economic consequences, at least if we look at it from the state's or the national economy's perspective. So this, of course, then means bad news for at least the people in general. We've seen this over the past few years in Yemen. We've seen this in Afghanistan. We're seeing in this um, Libya? in Libya. Exactly. So, okay, we've understood that conflicts are bad at many levels, geopolitically, but also more generally uh, working against our other goals. But how can we work against that? If we're looking at the scenario of Cherba, the Republic of Fijikistan uh, is perhaps not working in the interest of the EU. What would you recommend to the HRVP or the member states or really literally anybody? How can they work against that? Well, here it becomes tricky, right? And uh, it does actually tie in with what Katerina has just said about the intervention of third powers and even non-state actors as well in a crisis situation. Because what we experience and know about the more geopolitical dimension to you know, the involvement of third powers in a crisis situation is that there is a high degree of deniability to their presence and their participation in that conflict. And they're not directly involved. So on that basis, one could say, well, if the EU does get directly involved, let's say in this case by supporting the government that's in power in Gerba, it becomes front and centre part of that conflict, which can, of course, be exploited again by third powers who can run all sorts of disinformation campaigns about the EU, 
and its you know former colonial past and so forth. So being intrinsically involved in a conflict situation is not very easy for the EU, especially when third powers can take a kind of arm's length approach to these crisis situations, deny all involvement, deny all their role in aggravating the conflict at all. And of course, the EU is left in a sense holding the can of a very tricky and complex crisis situation. The easy answer to this type of question is that the EU needs to invest heavily in conflict prevention capabilities, right? So the mantra is that if we know more about the crisis situation, if we know more about the region, then by hook or by crook, we'll sort the situation out. Well, the difficulty that we face now is that even if you have all of the intelligence at hand, even if you have uh, as much money as you need, as much resources as you need for conflict prevention, it is still very difficult to dissuade third powers who wish to involve themselves in a crisis situation for geopolitical reasons to kind of ward that off. And we see that with a number of third powers who increasingly know this, that there are basically no limits to their spread around the world and in parts of the world where there are crises and where there are conflicts to exploit. So it's not easy for the EU from a diplomatic sense to ward off third powers from coming to countries that might be more in the backyard of the European Union. Because, Florence, it comes back to the question you asked previously, which is, is it good or bad? We have no legitimate right, in a sense, to tell a third power that they can't be involved in a country, even if it's directly on our border. So there's clearly a gap in our ability to ward off or deter this type of action. Deterrence, I use deterrence as a specific word because normally we think of it in terms of continental security, you know, nuclear deterrence, conventional deterrence for territorial protection. What seems to be a missing link here is deterrence beyond this conventional interpretation. So in many respects, if the EU is going to try and craft a relatively successful strategy, to crisis, increasingly it will have to think about how it deters third powers from trying to engage in a conflict situation in the first place, to essentially raise the costs so high that it wouldn't be very lucrative or opportune for these third powers to try and integrate themselves in a conflict situation. It's not very easy to do this. I think at present we don't have the tools to do it. And also it requires of the EU a very different mindset in the way it approaches crisis situations. And here I would just end by saying we also have to be really careful about one factor. And that is that if you go down the road of looking at every single crisis through the prism of a geopolitical conflict, you run the risk of misinterpreting what type of crisis and conflict you're actually dealing with. So if you're going to a crisis, a regional conflict, a regional crisis that isn't necessarily geopolitical in its uh, effects or in terms of the influence in that part of the world, and that's the prism through which you see it, you're probably getting things wrong again. Vice versa, we shouldn't probably view every single crisis situation or area of instability as simply a kind of traditional crisis management type of scenario. So there could be underlying this nefarious means or motives beyond simply instability and conflict in a region. What people probably don't understand about conflict as a phenomenon is that you never walk into the same conflict twice because the conflict in the beginning perhaps 
let's look at Libya 2014, was a very national problem. And the longer it festered, the more regional it became. And then it became geopolitical. Danny, I have a question about deterrence, though. Is there a role for defense in this? Well, I was going to say that this is really the tricky part of the debate, because if you look at the cases of Libya and Syria, you have different types of strategies there by Europeans in how to deal with a crisis situation. So in the case of Libya, we know that military intervention was used as one tool of trying to uh, not only gain some kind of foothold in Libya in that crisis situation, but also to deal with the instability in that country. Of course, we're living with the strategic effects of that decision today, which are not all positive by any means. But if you flip it and you look at Syria, where we didn't intervene, uh, you have another set of problems. So it's very difficult, actually, as a defense analyst to say, well, yes, military intervention will work in every single case or non-intervention will work in every single case. So it's very, very difficult. I think more and more now when we look at crisis situations, the go-to strategy of simply deploying military force has huge problems. Because actually, if it is a regional conflict that has a geopolitical aspect to it, okay, We know that third powers are less likely to be using overt military force in that type of crisis situation. So they will use proxies, they may use special forces, as was recently witnessed in Venezuela, for example, or they may use actors in bordering states. Uh, they may even go into an alliance with terrorist groups. And so coming there as Europeans with a kind of heavy hammer uh, is not always the way to deal with these situations, I would say. Katarina, what can we do in that situation? To prevent it or to diffuse it or to slow it down or to reduce it? I don't know. Tell me what to do. Taking that last point that Daniel said, again, I completely agree. So a military solution in its own, we have years and years of experience that shows that it's not working. Sorry, but is it really not working? Because if you look at Bosnia, if you look at Kosovo, if you look at East Timor, you have cases where military deployments actually did help prevent uh, the conflict from flaring up again. I guess we'll have to nuance that a little bit now, because I think the impression that you're giving by saying it's just not working is the Libyan scenario where the international community removes the regime, leaves the, the people to themselves um, without actually addressing that there's an underlying conflict. Of course, I'm saying that a military involvement would not play any constructive role in pressuring parties and helping parties to find a political settlement and stabilizing a situation in the first place. But if we want to actually resolve these conflicts and create something that is sustainable in terms of sustaining the peace that is achieved and also that perhaps prevents the conflict from diffusing or geographically moving from where it was to another context, which is indeed what has happened in the Sahel. I, I would argue that we need a lot more investment in both research and policy development and practitioners' involvement to combine civil-military responses with active peace building and peacemaking activities. So actually, I think one kind of striking statistics that we can um, use today is that, again, if we compare the conflict trends of today, 2018 being the kind of last 
reference point to the levels of conflicts and the way conflicts were handled in the beginning of 1990s. We have approximately the same number of active conflicts uh, occurring today, yet we have uh, significantly less peace agreements being negotiated and signed by conflict parties today than we had in the beginning of 1990s. Now, there are multiple reasons for why this is the case. Indeed, I would say one of the reasons is that internal armed conflicts have become more internationalized. Hence, it's more difficult to negotiate these peace agreements. But I would very much still emphasize the importance of settlements and the importance of multi-track approaches to the question of uh, making peace. So precisely because we are now facing these complex conflict situations that I would say are never just geopolitical. I would say a conflict situation in a country A, even if it is internationalized heavily, is not just a geopolitical rivalry between regional and international powers primarily. The original local conflict is still there. It has probably also changed. Florence, like you mentioned, uh, the conflict in Libya today is completely different than it was in 2014-15. Yet the local dynamics are still there and they are still incredibly important. And so if we want to resolve these complex conflicts, we need to, one, be tackling the local conflict dynamics. So as the EU, with the coordinated approach, hopefully, which is very important, try to incentivize and support the local conflict actors to talk to one another. Perhaps at some point this is not possible via official levels or in, in public ways, but there are plenty ways to go around this kind of uh, formality. We need to tackle the underlying conflict triggers at the same time. And then we need to engage with the multiple international actors, external actors involved in the conflict. So indeed, there's quite interesting new research that is looking into interstate peace agreements and interstate peace negotiations in the context of primarily intrastate conflicts. And I think this is one of the kind of um, ways to go about how we are going to settle and build peace in these complex conflict settings. It's a question of bringing together the micro and the macro. And I won't focus too much on the micro so much, but from the macro side of things, I think another thing that we have to keep in mind, especially from the more geopolitical point of view, is this issue of political vacuums that can be left. Two areas in particular, the Sahel and the Middle East, where there are question marks about the continued involvement of the United States. If there is a pullback, a strategic pullback from these theatres, therefore, you know, kind of undermining the strategic meta structures that are there, we will have problems as Europeans. And in fact, we've already seen this in the case of the Sahel with the threat of the US uh, pulling out forces in that part of the world, puts more pressure on Europeans to think about what role the military instrument could play in that role. And then one final brief point as well. I think, again, within the context of the geopolitical aspects of internationalization of crises, one of the things that we've maybe been a bit too slow with at the European level is also thinking about the crisis management paradigm that we've inherited from the 90s. 
So this is very much kind of, you know, dealing with the ill effects of globalization. You know, if only we right the wrongs of the system, we'll bring peace, we'll bring prosperity and all of this. I think now the crisis management paradigm has shifted quite dramatically. And that has a huge bearing upon the types of tools that the European Union will bring to parts of the world. It's not just about deploying troops, but let's say if the European Union does deploy troops, it will be doing so now in a much more technologically sophisticated area where, you know, terrorist groups can use off-the-shelf commercial technologies to strategic effect, third powers increasingly using capabilities such as cyber uh, to try and infiltrate, to try and uh, stoke disinformation campaigns. One more point, Katarina, because then I want us to go concretely to Cherba and come up with some Uh, concrete ideas for the HRVP that in this hypothetical scenario, just send me a text message and said, tell me what to do. Two uh, quick points to respond to Daniel. One, yes, uh, we need to be really aware of the potential power vacuums that are created either by the exit of one international actor or by actually solving part of a conflict through a peace agreement. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this, but I'm saying that in these conflict contexts that are increasingly complex in terms of having multiple non-state armed groups, multiple militias fighting perhaps on the side of the government, taking out, so to speak, one or two of these groups that have been major players through a peace settlement can indeed actually be counterproductive for the conflict dynamics because it creates this kind of power vacuum. And I think this is not to say we should not try to pressure and contribute to peace settlements, but that, again, this emphasizes the importance of multi-track approaches and just having kind of exit strategies to these situations. Second point, more related to the EU's uh, conflict prevention and mediation and peace building strategies, I think what you were perhaps implicitly referring, or at least what came to my mind, is that we are still lacking a step from early warning capacities and kind of our analytical capacities and being able to see that a conflict is escalating, that it's becoming more international and it's something that we might want to prevent or mitigate. Yet we do not really know how to use the existing instruments in a way that would actually respond to those situations in a timely manner. So when we look at the concrete case of the Republic of Cherba, we basically see now a situation where the government has decided to stop mediation with the Euralanski and Freedom Front, you have remained silent in your scenario on whether the People's Republic of Fijikistan is actually a neighbor, is it a regional or is it a geopolitical actor? I leave that to you to decide, but give me three concrete ideas. It's now two months into the conflict. What would you suggest the EU does in this context? So the first question is about timing. Two months is probably too late already. At least when I thought of the scenario, I thought of the People's Republic of Fijikistan as not being a bordering state. So having some kind of geographical proximity quite far away from the crisis situation, but still necessarily trying to exploit it. The first piece of advice I would give is to try and establish the claims which the government is making in Gerba, because in fact, they are the ones claiming that this outside partner, Fijikistan, is interfering in its affairs. We don't know why they're doing that. We don't know what the motives are for that. 
and we would have to establish a pretty solid intelligence picture of whether indeed there is outside interference in that conflict because then i think it becomes a question of maybe recalibrating our perspective of the conflict and also recalibrating the type of tools that we might want to use in that particular conflict so if it is indeed more of a crisis that will as katerina said you begin with a more kind of intrastate conflict that then becomes regional you will need a whole set of new tools for that or a different set of tools for this situation than you would if you were dealing with a third power interfering in that part of the world so I would try and establish uh, whether or not these links are actually verifiable or whether there's any truth behind them. If there's no truth, then we as the European Union will probably have to establish why on earth the government in Gerber is playing this game. Does it play this game because it knows that we will wake up and want to engage in part of that conflict or be present in the ground? And does that maybe send us a bit of a signal to say, well, we probably shouldn't jump into this conflict dynamic so early on if the government is trying to play different international partners or third powers off of each other? So I'd be very suspect of this. Ideas from you? Three things. So uh, first, conflict analysis, indeed. So I would also say if we are already two months into the conflict and it has escalated, I certainly hope that some conflict analysis has already taken place. But conflict analysis is really important and it's not just important because we like to say that conflict analysis is important as researchers or think tankers, but really because this actually is really important from the perspective that you just asked. Have we thought of the Republic? or the People's Republic of Fijikistan as a neighboring country or is it a regional power or is it a global power? And of course, these are the things that are incredibly important in the conflict analysis because what we should be asking is who are the relevant conflict parties in this complex conflict system? In terms of the external parties, why do they want to intervene if they do? So first of all, of course, we should actually try to have credible intelligence of what is actually going on between the two states and the involvement of the external power. But if there is something, why is it happening? What are their political and economic interests in the situation? At the same time, what are the incompatibilities between the local conflict parties? So what's the beef in the actual internal armed conflict? Second, Based on this conflict analysis, we should try to support, incentivize the local conflict parties, which hopefully at this point, at least according to our scenario, are still not multiple. So we are still talking about a conflict between a state and a rebel group. And one of the kind of first steps would be to try to bring these parties into negotiations, perhaps first through shuffle diplomacy, informal talks, but eventually try to bring them around the table and agree at least on a ceasefire. I see that uh, in terms of this scenario, some type of internal power sharing agreement would be really important and also not necessarily impossible. I mean, the conflict did originate from a coup attempt. So we know that the country has a history of having, for instance, inter-ethnic military or security forces. So this is something that should be possible to agree upon again. And then the second layer of the uh, kind of peace building or peacemaking support and the third point that I wanted to add is to support uh, talks 
again, probably first informal, between the Republic of Cherba and the People's Republic of Fijikistan, because clearly they do have a political conflict in between themselves. I would add to that that the point about intelligence is absolutely crucial here, because you want to be able to establish, firstly, if Fijikistan is involved, If you establish that they are, you can then do, for example, interesting intelligence work on, let's say, for example, there is evidence that arms are being shipped to that part of the world or to the breakaway group. It would be very interesting to know what type of arms are being shipped. If it is very sophisticated military technology, then you might forward the assumption or the analysis that, in fact, the third power is looking for a very, very quick change in government. If it is just about smuggling small arms and light weapons, which, as we know, are conducive to, yes, intense conflict, but actually prolonged conflict, then that points to a kind of different strategy, if indeed this third power is involved. Another point that I think cannot be stressed enough is also the EU's strategic communication on all of this, because we know even in the short period that we've been in 2020, that strategic communication is absolutely critical, not only to our citizens, but also to the conflict situation itself. They are actively looking at the EU for signals, the way the EU is positioning itself in a particular crisis situation. And we need to be very, very clear about where we put our flag in this particular crisis situation. Even in the case of Gerba, I think that uh, strategic communication is of paramount importance based on sound intelligence, conflict analysis, as Katerina has also said, and of course, getting all of the information you normally get from the EU delegations and from the external action service and the desks. What I do with all my guests is that they have to give me a probability, a likelihood that a scenario like this will occur between now and the end of 2021. In this case, I would say how likely do you think it is that an intrastate conflict breaks out with an international dimension that is detrimental to the EU between now and 2021? Or oh, 70%. 70%, okay. I say 75. 75, okay, not bad. Well, we'll talk again end of 2021 and see how well you did. Thank you, Daniel and Katarina, for joining me on this trip to the future. And thanks to you for listening to us. Tune in again for another What If Scenario soon. <laughs>